right. Good evening. How are we, how's everybody doing? So good to be here, and uh, what a pleasure. So, uh, actually, I'm going to do a quick plug while I'm loading up this uh, stuff here. And just, uh, yeah, so I teach at Gateway Seminary, which is based in Southern California, Ontario. Um, and we're just training people who want to go into missions and ministry and serve the Lord. And we want to train leaders to reach the world. Uh, we also have a campus actually in Fremont on the Bay Area, not so far, plus we have an online thing. And so that's my plug. Some of you want to, when you leave here, not everyone, but some of you are going to be called to ministry in various ways, and you're going to sense the need for some training. Even at PhD level, which I'm involved in, um, you know, we're trying to train thought leaders who are going to, ch because uh, ideas have consequences. We want to train people to really help people think right about the big issues of life and about the Bible. So the title for tonight is, Does God Believe in Atheists? And this is something that's uh, kind of close to my own heart and life because I came to Christianity out of uh, a period of atheism. And so, so when you disperse tonight, I'll tell you some of my own story, uh, how that all worked out and how God was very gracious to me. So if you're here tonight and you're flirting with atheism or you're not sure about Christianity and so on, I'm not here tonight uh, to rehearse the various arguments for the existence of God. You may be pleased to know. Uh, if you're an atheist here tonight, you're very welcome. Uh, I'm not going to get at you, all right? Uh, because I'd just be getting at myself, you know, for what I was. And, uh, and so what I am going to think about is, what does God think about atheism? And is there any clue uh, in the Bible? And, uh, and is there a path for an atheist with integrity to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what, that's what we're going to talk about. So, actually, there aren't all that many true atheists in the world, to be honest. They're kind of almost an endangered species. Not that we want more of them. <laughs> but there just aren't that many. And, uh, and it's not surprising. Because uh, even those people who have serious doubts about the existence of God or really don't know what's out there and what's beyond or what's beyond, beyond, beyond or what was before, 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 even those people tend to pray when they get desperate. And I've had people who don't believe in God or don't, you know, don't follow God. They get into a hard time. They call me up. Will you pray for me? This is something serious is happening. Will you pray? They don't really want to acknowledge God, but they acknowledge prayer, which is just a little step away. So the first thing uh, I want to talk about here is accountability. Atheism, and I know this from my own experience, atheism is resistance to accountability. You know, when I was a, a, an atheist and I was at college, actually, and uh, I went into college as a very aggressive atheist. My, I was, my great delight was to meet Christians because I was trying to destroy their faith. And so I would go hunting Christians. And I had a friend of mine who was uh, equally as committed uh, as I was to this kind of life. And, uh, and so and we went looking for Christians to try to get them into arguments, to try to win the argument, try to upset them, try to destroy their faith. And uh, they would tell me, you know, you need to give Jesus control of your life. Well, to be honest, that freaked me out. 
I said, that just sounds awful. I don't want to be some kind of robot. I, I totally misunderstood, of course, what it meant to serve God, to have, to have Jesus be Lord or in charge of your life. I totally misunderstood what that meant. And I, I didn't understand the freedom that actually Jesus brings when you meet him. But what I was showing very obviously was I did not want someone else to hold me accountable. Thank you very much. I want to do what I want to do. Don't you tell me how to live my life. But I was not afraid to go around telling everybody else how they should live their life. <laughs> right? But I didn't want them telling me how to live my life. And, you know, honestly, it was just foolish. The Bible says in Psalm 53, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And this is not talking about someone who just can't think straight. This is talking someone who's kind of morally foolish, who doesn't, who, who, who disregards the, the truth and, and goodness and goes another way. And in Psalm 10, verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked doesn't seek him. All his thoughts are, there's no God. And the thing about the atheism that I experienced was, that, was I, and I recognized this only after I really met Jesus, was how full of pride I was. And here I'm not looking at anybody who's an atheist tonight and saying, you're full of pride. I'm saying, that's what I was like. I just know the arrogance that says, I know what there is to know about the universe and beyond. <laughs> and I know there's no God out there. Now, honestly, it's not a very good strategy for an atheist to keep trying to meet Christians. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, it's a, I mean if, that's a bad strategy for an atheist. Uh, you keep meeting Christians and they keep loving you and telling you about Jesus. Craig Evans said this about this quote from Psalm 53. It says, there is no God, as it's expressed in, in the Psalms, is an expression of practical atheism, of living as though God is distant and indifferent. You see, maybe tonight... You're not strictly an atheist, but maybe you live like you are. Like God doesn't really matter to you. You, you want to live your self-enclosed life. I know from my own experience that atheists don't want to be held accountable to God for their actions. After all, we don't want to be judged by anybody. And of course, it's one of the I suppose it's one of the, you know, the sayings of our time, right? Don't judge me. Nobody wants to be judged, do they? I certainly don't. But guess what? Sometimes we need it. Certainly need God's word on our life. We need to hear his verdict. We need to understand where we stand. Second thing I want to say about atheism is this, and again, it's from experience. Atheism is a negative doctrine. What do I mean by that? Atheism is a negative doctrine. What does that mean? Modern atheism is not so much a product of science, 
of too much science. It's a product of anti-church feeling. Modern science, as it has developed in the West, exists only because of Christianity, right? I mean, Christianity believes in what we call an objective creation. That means when God created the world, he gave it its own real existence. And God is everywhere present, but he's not in that tree or that rock. And that mountain is not God. And that moon is not God. And so that worldview allows for the development of science where you can examine the creation and it makes sense and there's an inherent truth to it. It's only in the presence of, of in, a, in a long tradition of Christianity that modern science actually developed in a, in a world that believed, at least for several hundred years, in the existence of truth and falsehood. You know, so many people, they're okay with Jesus. They don't like the church, right? You know that? I met so many people as in my life and ministry. You know, they, the reason that they don't want God is because they don't like the church. They, they, they think Jesus is okay. There was this guy called Jimmy when I was uh, involved with a coffee house ministry in the southwest of England, in a beach town. We set up this ministry there, uh, trying to reach the, tr reach the people there. And there was this guy, Jimmy, who would come in. Most nights we were open, and he would you know, get, have our coffee and cake. And uh, Jimmy was, well, he was a drunk Scotsman, basically. <laughs> you know, and uh, I, I met, I'd met one or two of them before. I was actually work minister, I was actually serving the Lord in England, but... The first time I got to England, I went up to Piccadilly Circus in London and I tried to uh, tell someone about Jesus. And uh, I happened to meet another drunk Glaswegian, another drunk Scotsman, and uh, I honestly couldn't understand a word he was saying. I thought, I've come to a, another language. I thought I was coming from Australia. I thought we all spoke the same language, but it wasn't true. And Jimmy got like that the more, he, the more bottle he had in him. And he would come to our coffee house and he would talk about Jesus. He says, you know, Jesus is my best friend. I can't put on his Scots accent. I'm not going to try. He said, Jesus is my best friend. I really like Jesus, you know. And then if we didn't give him something like a bit of extra money or something, he got really upset with us. And one night he went and he found an old toilet in a dump somewhere and he, ran and he threw the toilet through the plate glass window of our coffee house. And come back the next week, tears in his eyes. Jesus is my best friend. And, and he's been hurt by the church, you see. And look, the church has some things to answer for. There's reasons why people are put off Christ Christianity sometimes. But modern atheism is really obsessed with Christianity. The so-called new atheists are not out there debating Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism. Modern atheism wouldn't exist without Christianity to like or to dislike, I should say, or to oppose. We're the reason for their existence. Especially that kind of, you know, hard edge of aggressive modern atheism. Uh, persecution of the church has been a feature uh, as a feature of atheistic states since the French Revolution. 
right? Uh, Karl Marx, the founder of communism, called religion the opiate of the masses, you know, the drug of the common people. The Soviet communists made atheism a state doctrine and were obsessed with purging Christianity from the state. The Albanian communists declared themselves the world's first true atheist state. It's a country on the Mediterranean right there next to Greece. And that was after they destroyed the churches and found all the priests they could, sealed them in barrels and rolled them into the sea and said, now we're an atheist state. They're obsessed with opposing the church. So that's why I'm saying it's a negative doctrine. It's actually, it hasn't got anything really positive to say. I know that because that's what I was like as an atheist. I didn't have anything. There was nothing to say to anybody except no. And that's an emptiness and a void that no amount of intellectual justification of my position could ever fill. Now I'm going to talk about someone in the Bible called Paul. You know about the Apostle Paul and his opposition to Christianity. Now Paul is a long way from an atheist. He's a belie he believes in God, but he is fiercely opposed to early Christianity. Fiercely opposed. And, he, and this passage, Acts 26, 9 to 12, talks about his fury against believers in Christ. He says, I myself was convinced I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints, holy people, in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Paul was like a, an agent of destruction, wandering around Israel up into Syria, trying to destroy early Christianity, just trying to kill as many as he can, at least get them killed officially. He wasn't actually going around putting them to death, but he was handing them over into prison, trying to get them killed by the state. And uh, that was his, he was so angry. But guess what? What's Paul, what's going to happen to Paul when he keeps going out and arresting Christians? He's going to meet Christians. Right? That's not a good plan. Because they're going to pray for him. They're going to share their, the love of God with him. They're going to share Jesus with him. Still resisted. And Paul encountered Jesus Christ on his way to Damascus, north from Israel, going up to Syria. He's going to find up there some any believers in Christ, and he's going to arrest them and bring them back for, for trial. And he says, and this is actually a quote from his own trial, when he's on trial for his faith in Christ. He says, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, that was his other name, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. By the way, that just means like uh, sort of sharp sticks that herdsmen would use to uh, prod their sheep along and so on, and the cattle. And, it's, and, and this is Jesus telling him, I'm actually trying to get you to go a certain direction. Stop resisting. 
And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See, even though Paul is not saying, of course, that he's against God, he's against the church. In actual practice, he's working against, directly against God himself and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is persecuting Jesus. That's what he's doing. And it's so hard to resist when Jesus is trying to prod you along. I can tell you that from my own experience. So the chief persecutor becomes the chief proclaimer. Right? Rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, Jesus said to Paul, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. This, is all, this passage, if you can't read that, it's on your handout. Straight from Acts 26. And, and delivering you from your people, that will be the Jews, and from the Gentiles, because they're all going to be against him, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul has turned, turned right around. And this was one of those dynamic encounters where he was instantly and totally converted and he just his whole life turned around and he's now going to be opening the eyes of people who are going to try to persecute him that's his job you're going to go to people and they're going to try to get you and I'm you're sending them to open sending you to open their eyes because I want them to turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God they may receive forgiveness this is at the heart of the gospel, the very people that are most opposed to the church, that are most opposed especially to Christ, that are most opposed to God, that are most opposed to the message, guess what? Those are the people that God is pursuing. Those are the people that God is pursuing. See, blind eyes must be opened. This is what Paul said in one of his letters, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The God of this world, that would be the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ to his image of God. And Paul says, look, we're not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. Ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. Look, I'm not here tonight either to proclaim myself. I don't care if you ever know, even remember what my name is. I do care if you think if you if you encounter Christ, if you if you come to meet him. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, so that's an illusion, right back to Genesis one and the creation of the world, the creation even of light. The God who, who actually created light has shone in our hearts. Paul says, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We need our eyes opened. When we're running from God, we're, walk, we're stumbling in the blind in the darkness. And it's an empty and a pain-filled existence. I can tell you that from my own experience. see, atheism leads not to science, but to spiritual confusion. 
There's a famous quote which roughly goes, the first effect of not believing in God is to believe in anything. Now, this is attributed to G.K. Chesterton, although it probably wasn't. It's kind of a combination of things. It's someone paraphrasing Chesterton. So, but listen, human unbelief doesn't, of course, affect the existence of God, but is a denial of our own personhood. It's actually a denial of who we are made in the image of God, made to know our creator, made to serve and walk with him in intimacy and friendship and fellowship and purity. And so I grew up in this, uh, in a church family and uh, it was a, I can't say that our church believed a whole lot, uh, they were well, sweet, well-meaning people who want to make the world a better place, but they didn't preach the gospel and they didn't really tell me about Jesus. It was more poetry than Bible in the sermons, you know, the kind of thing. And when I was a young teenager, I decided I don't believe any of it. I just became an, an atheist and I turned right away and, uh, and I was very aggressive, as I said. And by the time I got to college, I was just looking to destroy people's faith. Uh, to my shame, honestly. That's a shameful thing. But that's what it was. But I did meet Christians. Now, because I'm not seeking God the way I'm supposed to, I'm seeking everything and anything else, right? And so, what is there left to seek? Where's my life going? What meaning does it have? And of course, life became a, a my, my goal was to understand myself which sounded kind of hip and noble and everything was just really selfish and self-centered, honestly. You know, I've got to truly understand myself. Uh, yeah, the trouble is the more you do that, the more depressed you get, <laughs> right? You think, yeah, I need, need self-awareness, self-knowledge. You know, that's trouble. I've done that, you know, and it, it just kind of leads you into blackness and darkness and fear and horror. Really, I'm like that? Because in fact, when Jesus comes to save us from the mess we've actually made of our own lives, right? It only leads to confusion. But I meant, and so I got, I went, the more I, I ran, the more I was aggressive against Christians and the more I was trying to find out who I really was, the more depressed I got. The funny thing was, it was in my darkest and most painful moments, it was Christians who loved me and, and still accepted me even I was trying to persuade them that they were totally wrong. Even when I won the argument and I had some you know, stupid self-centered sense of victory because I won that intellectual argument but I lost you know, integrity, because they're just trying to mess them up. And so people started to tell me about Jesus. And one summer holiday, vacation, we were down at the beach. I was with the same friend of mine who was, he was my partner in crime, right? And uh, we were just, we came across some Christians that were running a beach mission. So they invited us along. So we let's go. We're going to have some good time. You know, we're going to debate them. And that's what we did. Hours debating Christians. 
trying to get them upset, trying to... And sometimes we won the debate. And honestly, some of these people, you know, we just thought they were so uncool. I mean, there was one of them. He, was at, he had a double chin. Okay, so, okay, he had a double chin. But his beard was on his second chin. But, you know, it's just my arrogance look at poking fun at people and trying to find something wrong with them, right, instead of looking at the heart. And so we stayed for hours witnessing to them that something started to get through to our heart, even though I didn't believe. And it came to New Year's Eve. And I started, I started in the back of my mind, even though in the front of my mind, I did not want to admit that God even existed Somehow, I knew he was there. <laughs> How's that? And I came to New Year's Eve, and I've never made a New Year's, res- New Year's resolution before that night, and I never have done one since. But I made a New Year's resolution. I said, sometime this year, I've got to decide totally for Jesus Christ or totally against him. I don't want, because I always said, I said, you know, if I ever became a Christian, I don't want to be half-hearted, wishy-washy, namby-pamby, middle-of-the-road, nothing. Because I knew a lot of church people like that that made me ill. And it, now, again, I, I didn't want to, so I've got, I've got to be either totally committed or totally denying it. So that was my news resolution. Sometime this year, I'm going to make a, total, a decision, totally reject this possibility ever, or I'm going to totally embrace Jesus Christ and follow him as Lord and Savior. Well, as the year went on, as you do, you put these things off, right? Because that seems like a pretty earth-shaking decision to make. I can wait till next month, you know, I've got a whole year. But as the year went on, something happened to me. God started to speak to me. Now, it wasn't audible, but I was just walking home from college, right, with my bag of books and so on. And suddenly, in my mind, God was speaking. And I knew it was him, even though I didn't believe in him. And he's saying, he called me by name, and he said, John. I said, I love you. And he said, I want you to give me your whole life. And I said, no! (laughs) I said, go away! (laughs) And he seemed to go away. And then a few weeks later, when I was least expecting it, just wandering along the street with a, not much happening up here, you know, that happens a bit actually, you know. (laughs) You know, like my wife will say to me, what are you thinking about, John? Nothing really. (laughs) So it's hard for her to believe that because in her mind there's always something going on. So, uh, and so I just wandering along and God spoke to me again. I want you to commit your life to me. I want you to give up. I want to be Lord of your life. I was so scared. I was so scared. Now, this went on for a, f- a few months. And I was just resisting, but aware in the back of my mind somehow that I was losing integrity. Because 
I really wanted to have at least some intellectual integrity and honesty to say, okay, I'm following my beliefs in some way, right? And so one day we were with a group of friends and we went up the mountain nearby Melbourne where I, where I grew up. And uh, it's not a terribly huge mountain, but it's a nice mountain up there. And we went up and in the forest and we were looking for these birds called lyrebirds. They're very beautiful birds. They have a big long tail like a peacock except it's all white, and it comes out on a massive display. It's, it's called a lyre, not because they lie, but because uh, they shape like a lyre, right, the instrument. And these birds are quite remarkable. You know, YouTube them sometimes, not now. And, uh, and so they, uh, not only do they, do they have this beautiful tail, the male bird, but they, the male bird, he builds a huge mound, it's about that high off the forest floor, and uh, he's going to put on his mating dance to find a woman, right? And he does this, and he puts this, and he, and he spreads out his tail, and he goes around, and then he sings on his mound with his tail going around. And the song, he's got his own little song, but he's also, uh, you know, he steals riffs from other birds, <laughs> Right? And uh, in fact, he can mimic anything that's going on in the forest, like a chainsaw, or a truck driving by, or uh, a tree falling, or anything. And if you go along in, in the forest up there and you hear, you know, and you think that's a whip bird, but it could be a lyre bird, right? And so we were, they were wonderful. So we look at but they're shy. So we're out there looking for them. And everybody was just joking, making noise, and I'm never going to see these birds. I said, I'm just going for my own. I'm going to walk on my own through the forest. And as I walked on my own through the forest, God spoke to me again. And he said, totally unexpected, but he said, you've been putting this off long enough. <laughs> you need to give your life to me. You need to surrender right now. So on the mountain, Sunday morning, obviously it wasn't a church, right? I sat down under a tree. I didn't know what to say, but I knew I had to do it to maintain any sense of integrity because I knew that he was there. So I told Jesus that I would give him my whole life. I didn't know how to say it, so I said it twice, just in case. <laughs> Something happened in my heart. I went to church that night, and we had a visiting... A preacher who actually, uh, you know, he was a Christian, and uh, and so he got up and said, "Tell the," he said, "Look, just for a moment, talk to the person in the seat next to you. Tell them something interesting that happened to you in the last week or two. So the guy next to him was a friend of mine. Later would become the mayor of the city. Uh, he was. Uh, I said to him, "This is what I told him. The first person I told I become a Christian. You know. Then he. Then the pastor said." Anybody want to get up in front and tell the whole church what you just told your neighbor? This had never happened in, in that church ever, this, this routine. They didn't do it. I found myself on my feet, tears, you know, telling them that I became a Christian. And they, they were kind of, they thought this was a good thing. They didn't know quite what happened to me. But they knew how cynical I was about all things God and religion. And I was converted. I met Jesus. And uh, this absolutely radically changed my life, my direction of life. I discovered that you could pray 
and he might answer. He could talk to you. You could listen to him. And I discovered a world... It's like the lights went on. My eyes were open. This is what Paul was going around doing, opening people's eyes. He said, you know, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, this is what we need, our eyes opened. A year later, I was called to ministry. I had a couple of dreams. I've never had any dreams before or since that I really can say from God. Most of us could have had too much pizza. But God really spoke to me. And I'm thinking, are you calling me to ministry, God? It seemed like he really was. And I went to visit a friend's church. And I'm sitting there about 12 rows back. And the pastor suddenly stopped in the middle of the service, put down his Bible, said to me, young man, you down there about 12 rows back. Right in the middle of the sermon. I said, yeah, you. You know, I had long hair and a beard. Yeah, so he said, long hair, you know. So stand up. He said, God's calling you to the ministry. Sit down. All right. <laughs> okay, Lord, I suppose, I suppose I needed confirmation and that was it. And then I ended up finishing my degree and, and then going off in, into missions and, and serving the Lord for many years. Met my wife, Heidi, who's from Southern California, California girl. We met in England, both being missionaries over there. And we have four children, three grandchildren. And we've done a lot of things. But, listen, the Lord has been faithful that whole time. He's so good. God does not hate atheists. All right? Or agnostics. He loves you still. Hello? He loves you still. In fact... He's pursuing you like he was even pursuing Paul who was trying to put Christians in prison. This is what Paul says to the Ephesians. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's exactly like I was and like so many are, no, hopeless, godless, alienated, separated from everything that makes life meaningful and true. But now in Christ Jesus, Paul says to them, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ is a reference to Jesus' death. It's a way of interpreting his death as an atoning sacrifice for sins, that Jesus died for you and for the whole world. And he rose from the dead and is, and is Lord at the right hand of the Father. Listen, he doesn't hate you if you're an atheist or an agnostic or, a, or you're just troubled and doubting. He loves you, he's pursuing you. Stop running. When he catches you, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Shall we pray? Oh, our Father, our Father, our Father, thank you. 
for the grace that you have shown me, the mercy. (laughs) Thank you for the love of God that is in the sending of your own son, Jesus Christ, for our sins, for the world, to turn the world right side out. Thank you for the wonderful Holy Spirit that fills us. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for those tonight who are wondering about Jesus. And I know you are pursuing them. Father, keep pursuing them, the loving pursuit. And let, Lord, I pray for each of them that be able to turn their hearts and lives around. They'd be able to come and turn around to you and you will transform them. You will do them good. They can't ever make themselves good enough (laughs) to please you. They can come to you and be transformed. Lord, in Jesus' name, speak tonight to each one. Soften our hard hearts and open our blind eyes. Let us come to you and receive your mercy. We thank you that you're here, even tonight, speaking in the heart. We thank you in Jesus' name that you're here to save and to rescue. Amen.